Welcome. My name is Tesla Munson. You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. And this is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview UC Berkeley graduate students about their work. Today, I am fortunate to be joined by Jenna Judge. Welcome, Jenna. Say hello. Hello. Jenna is a PhD candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology here on a Berkeley campus here at UC Berkeley. And uh, you're a fifth year, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. Been here a while. That means you've got lots of stories to tell us today. So again, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Happy to be here. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I study deep sea biology and the adaptations of animals that live on unique habitats in the deep deeper parts of the ocean, like um, sunken wood or whale falls, which are dead whale carcasses, or shark egg cases or squid beaks. They're also at hydrothermal vents, and a lot of these are unique ecosystems that only certain animals have evolved to adapt and live there. Sounds like something out of a science fiction movie almost, especially that squid beaks. Can you tell me what a squid beak is? So squids um, have a hard part in their mouth, um, and it's called the beak. So it's basically the only hard part after the rest of the animal has um, decomposed. And there are some tiny animals that are able to use that as a habitat once it sinks to the bottom. Very cool. So, I mean, you're in California. You know, we get to see the ocean a lot. We see a lot of water environments here. Did you always know you wanted to be a marine biologist? No, it wasn't until the end of high school, but I grew up in South Lake Tahoe, and so always surrounded by water, um, but fresh water and mountains, and spent a lot of time outdoors. And we did a few trips to the ocean growing up and camping, and it was always something I was um, interested in. And then later I realized that I could make a career out of it. And that's what you've done here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your lab, too? I know that Berkeley biology students are usually in a lab. Yeah, so I'm in David Lindbergh's lab, and we do a variety of things in the lab. Um, my lab mate, Rosemary Romero, studies green algal blooms and how and their impact on the bay. And my other lab mate, Joey Pakes, who just recently finished her PhD, uh, studies cave systems um, in cenotes in the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, Previously in the lab, we've also had people studying whale evolution and um, changes in gray whale ecology and a whole variety of things um, over the 20 or so years that uh, David Lindbergh's been at UC Berkeley. So how did you get involved in marine biology as an undergraduate? I mean, you mentioned your interest in the subject, but how how did you actually get involved? What was your path? Well, I decided to go to UC Santa Barbara specifically because they had an aquatic biology major. And so fortunately, I was able to take um, specific classes in marine biology, like biology of fishes or deep sea biology, ecology of rivers and streams. Um, But I also uh, studied abroad through the UC EAP program and went to Australia. And that's also a program that's available to UC Berkeley students. And that was a very interesting experience. We got to spend a lot of time in the field and go to the Great Barrier Reef. And so that's what really cemented my desire to go to grad school after that. Um, I also volunteered at a couple labs 
at UC Santa Barbara and got involved with the research going on there. So I ended up just talking to some professors and seeing what I could do in their lab and ended up sorting animals under the microscope. And I have undergraduates of my own doing the same for me in the lab now. Very nice. And I know we're going to hear about some of that research in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to hear a little bit more about some of these international programs and just some of your work in the museums here on campus and on museums abroad. Yeah, so I'm a member of the Museum of Paleontology here at Cal, although I don't um, have any fossils to study because my animals didn't really fossilize very well. However, I've been fortunate to travel to several natural history museums around the world, including the University of Tokyo through the East Asia Pacific Summer Institute, which is funded by NSF and JSPS, and it's available to grad students um, here and in Canada. So I was fortunate to travel to Japan um, to work in the museum there and learn certain techniques for studying these small um, animals that I work on, which require microscopy to look at their certain structure of their shells and their teeth and their insides. And I also went to Munich for three months to work with a professor there in a museum, learning other methods of actually making a 3D reconstruction of a one millimeter across snail to be able to look at the details of its anatomy and how it might utilize its biology to live in its environment, which is uh, sunken worm tubes in the Mediterranean. And also while I was in Europe, I traveled to to Stockholm and worked with an expert in deep sea snails there, Anders Warren, which was great because there's really nothing that compares to the knowledge of these museum scientists and taxonomists that have been um, working on these groups of animals for their entire careers. And so it's really valuable as students to go and learn from these people if you can take the opportunity. Very nice. And I'm just going to backtrack just for one second there. You said the word microscopy. Can you just tell me what does what is that? So that's when we use microscopes as tools. It's, I guess, the science of microscopes. But there's lots of different kinds of microscopes, like scanning electron microscopes, using electron beam to look at the detailed surface structure of anything. Or what I most commonly use is the light microscope, which you might be familiar with from your high school biology class, where I put slices of snails on slides and stain them so that I can look at their internal anatomy. Okay. And then also you said you make 3D reconstructions. How how do you make a 3D reconstruction of something, especially so small? So first of all, you have to start with a stack of slices through the animal. So I basically embed the animal in plastic and then slice it using what's called a microtome, which is basically like a very small deli slicer. And you end up with a ribbon of slices through the animal, kind of like a film strip. And then once you take photos of each of these, you can put the photos in a stack and then you can scroll through the stack using certain 3D software. And once you have that photo stack, you can trace each organ with sort of a different color within the program. And then the program is able to piece that stack together into a a 3D image. And then this is very easy to embed in a PDF and share and publish and also make movies of to show different aspects of the anatomy of these very small animals. Wow. Wow. That sounds really cool. 
If you're just tuning in, my name is Tesla Munson. This is KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and you're listening to The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students here at UC Berkeley about their work. Today, I am joined by deep sea marine expert Jenna Judge in the Department of Integrative Biology. She's been telling us about some of her work down at the bottom of the ocean. Thanks again for being here, Jenna. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now? Because I've heard some crazy stories. Well, right now I'm uh, wrapping up a pretty exciting project in which I sank a bunch of wood on the bottom of the ocean. How far down did it go? So it was at 3,200 meters, which is around two miles deep. That's pretty far down there. Pretty far down. And this was offshore from Monterey, California. Um, I was working with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute with Jim Barry and his lab and um, was really fortunate to have the opportunity to sink a bunch of different kinds of wood with him and his lab uh, around two and a half years ago now. So in October of 2011. So what was the point of sinking this wood? I mean, I, would, I throw sticks in the ocean all the time. I mean, <laughs> why were you doing it? <laughs> well, there's uh, specialized communities of animals that live on sunken wood in the deep sea, and they have special adaptations to either eat the wood themselves, and they have microbes that help them digest it, or there's other animals that are just grazing the microbial community or fungal community off the surface. And there's also predators that are drawn to these sort of hot spots of, of food on the bottom of the ocean because most of the deep sea is pretty barren as far as food sinking down. So a big chunk of wood is a pretty big feast for an animal that can take advantage of it. So how do you know what's living on these things? I mean, did you have to go back and get the wood? Yeah, so we did have to go back and get the wood, and I was really fortunate to be able to because when we put it down there, I had no idea whether we would get it back or not. So we went back last October, and so it had been down for two years total, and we're able to use a remotely operated vehicle, which is like a remote-controlled submarine, to go and retrieve this wood. So, okay, let's let's backtrack a little bit. So you go out, you said it's off the coast of Monterey, so you have to mm-hmm. get out there. You don't just drive the submarine. No, no, no. So we're on like a, a big research vessel. It was the Western Flyer, and it's about a day's steam offshore. And this was part of a six-day research cruise in which there were lots of different projects going on, and I was also helping out with those. And my project took around a day total, but we did three different ROV dives on three different days to and to get all of the wood back. So you, you called it a research cruise. For a lot of people, cruise ha- has a very specific meaning. Were there aspects of this that were sort of like a cruise? Well, yeah, definitely. They fed us really well. In fact, there was a entire freezer dedicated to ice cream bars so you could have as much as you wanted and um, that sounds pretty ideal <laughs> yeah the, the crew often complains that well not really complains that they have to get some extra exercise after these research cruises but it's definitely a good atmosphere and everyone is serious about the research but also um, there's a lot of joking around that goes that goes along with the cruise so then you're out in the ocean you've got this submarine that's remote controlled you know we've we Most of us have played some video games. We kind of know how that goes. And so someone sends it down there two and a half miles down. And then and then how does it work? 
So there's two pilots that are operating the ROV. One is flying it. and Flying. Um, yeah, that's what they call it. So it's basically like they're they're in a pilot's chair and they have a few joysticks. And so they're controlling the buoyancy and thrust and where it's going and keeping track of where it is in relationship to the ship. And it's a pretty complex job. And then there's a second pilot that is controlling the arms on it. So there are two arms which are basically like big claws. And they are also operating like there's a drawer that comes in and out and a suction hose so you can vacuum up animals off off the bottom or take cores. So depending on what the scientists need to do, they equip the ROV ahead of time to accomplish those tasks. So there's two people there controlling it. And they rotate like every half an hour so that they're alert the whole time. And did you ever get to drive it? No, I never got to drive it. It's because it's a pretty serious job. But I did get to sit in a a third pilot chair, looks like a a cockpit chair, and control the HD camera. So so that's kind kind of fun. And you're in this room that's just small and dark and covered in monitors and is kind of moving with the ship. So it does feel like you're down there. So you can kind of kind of pretend like you're actually down in the bottom of the sea. So you had cameras down there. What uh, what are some of the things that you found while you were down there besides the wood? So besides the wood, actually, right off the bat, when we were looking for the wood, we came up on, we saw something in the distance and it looked kind of white. And so we thought, oh, maybe that's one of the wood bundles because we had them wrapped in white laundry mesh to keep them together. But as we got closer, we realized it was actually a sea lion fall. So it was a large male sea lion skeleton, which was down to just the bones and was coated in white bacterial mats and had all of these worms growing on it. So there are these specialized worms that actually root themselves into the bone and are digesting the bone. Um, They're called Osidax and they're incredibly diverse in Monterey Canyon. There's about 17 species. So it was really exciting to, to come across that just just passing through on our way to collect the logs. And then you brought everything back up. So what are you doing with it now? How, how much material do you have? And yeah, what are you doing with it? So I had about, well, I have exactly 28 bundles of wood covering 10 different species. So it's quite a bit of material. And I ended up pulling it up and putting it in buckets of ethanol, which then had to be shipped to me. But once in the lab, I have some undergrads helping me get all the animals out of the wood to begin with. And this is quite a challenging task because some animals, like uh, there are certain clams that actually bore into the wood. So they start off just as tiny baby clams that land on the outside and then start boring their way in and getting bigger and bigger. So they're really hard to get out because they're basically a tiny hole on the outside, but maybe potentially a huge clam on the inside. So there are lots of chisels and mallets involved, but also having to be really careful because the animals are very delicate. So that was a long process getting all of the animals out. But now we're at the point where everything is in jars and we're working on identifying all these animals that were in on these different kinds of wood because I'm interested in seeing whether the kind of wood matters to the animals that colonize it. And so far, there's pretty big, big differences. So it's interesting. There are. Can you give us a little, a little insight, just a sneak preview of what sort of interesting things you found? Sure. So generally, I think what What's mattering most is the the texture of the wood. So, for instance, I had palm fronds and then 
like sort of the opposite would be oak, like pieces of oak. So like in the harder logs like oak or pine or even redwood, there would be clams boring into it or small snails um, living on the outside. But in the palm, it's not really wood that's easy for those animals to bore onto the inside, but there's lots of little grooves in the palm. So sediment accumulates in there and we end up having lots of worms and crustaceans that are just sort of using that as habitat rather than maybe food source like the clams are using the oak for. So I think that's been the major difference. But then there's also differences if there's other qualities of the wood, like for instance, redwood is very high in tannins, and that's why people like to use them for decks, because they're resistant to pests here on land, but we're seeing that they're also resistant to being chewed up in the ocean as well. Wow, that's really interesting stuff. Okay, my name is Tesla Munson. You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. This is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by integrative biology student Jenna Judge, who's been telling us about some of her work in the deep sea. Thank you again, Jenna. And you were telling us about your research crews. You've been telling us about what inspired you to be a marine biologist, but I can't have a marine biologist here on the show and not ask some of the most basic questions like, why is the ocean important? Well, it's only the largest habitat on the planet, so it's pretty important that way. And we also know very little about it. So the deep sea is the largest biome on Earth. The ocean is like 96% of Earth's volume, but we've explored less than 5% of the deep sea. So there's still a lot left to learn about what lives there and how it works and how it's connected to the whole Earth system, including those that humans are occupying. I, I have heard somewhere that we send more missions into outer space than down into the deep ocean. I mean, do you think that's inaccurate? Oh, it's definitely true. Yeah, there's not a lot of funding for deep sea research. So anything could be down there. (laughs) Not anything. But (laughs) But um, you're going to let me uh, get away with the, (laughs) let my mind go crazy on this one just a little. Well, just so basically anytime a a deep sea expedition goes out for sampling new areas, they find countless new species. And a lot of these, there was a, a recent article by Philippe Boucher that said that it's on average, it takes 20 years for these new species to be described by taxonomists. Because there's just so many. Because there's just so many, yeah. Yeah, and we're discovering new species on uh, the terrestrial part of Earth as well. I guess there's just a lot out there that, you know, we haven't looked into yet. But, okay, so going back to the ocean, that's why we're here after all. What can we do to help protect the ocean? I mean, if if it's so important and makes up so much of the Earth, obviously it must play a role beyond just where we get our fish. Well, I mean, like global warming is the most important issue today, and we hear about it a lot in the context of rainforests and increased desertification, so transition of forests into deserts and things like that. But as we were saying before, most of the Earth's surface area is ocean, and so we also have rising ocean temperatures, and this is influencing feeding back into the Earth's climate and impacting our weather patterns and creating more extreme weather patterns, as we've already been seeing. 
But so obviously trying to curb that is the big mission, but also on smaller scales, things like buying less plastic packaging or plastic bags, because one of the biggest problems is actually marine debris in the oceans. And there's a North Pacific garbage patch that's been studied quite a bit at this point. It is a major source of death, especially for larger animals in the ocean, like uh, turtles and seabirds. So just keeping our trash out of the oceans, it seems like uh, the number one most basic thing to do, but we're still having problems with that, aren't we? Oh, yeah. It's an it's a incredibly huge problem. Things get washed into the ocean all the time. Big storms are also inputs of debris. I know that what yeah. you put down your drain often ends up in the ocean as well. Yep. So I, that's why they, they are very serious about, you know, being careful what you put down in the drain, what's going to make it out to the ocean. And Oh, yeah. In fact, they're starting to see levels of pharmaceutical medication in the ocean, which is having some effects on the marine life there. So, so we're talking just... about doped out fish now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't flush your pills down the drain. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to be out there with sharks on uh, on oxycodone or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, we don't want to know what that what's going to happen with that. And I know that here in California, there's a lot of interest in the ocean. So there there are definitely some local resources for understanding more about the ocean and what we can do to protect it and, and learn more about it. Do you, do you have any insights? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, even right in San Francisco, the Aquarium by the Bay is a great resource. It's a small aquarium, but they put on some events and you can go visit them. And there's also um, representatives down there by Pier 39 from the Marine Mammal Center. But if you want to get more involved, they also have lots of, they take volunteers to help out with marine mammal conservation. There's also an organization called Save the Bay that does a lot of work in the bay and surrounding estuaries and I think some coastal work and they put on some cleanups. There's a lot of great organizations organizations and including a little further away but Monterey Bay Aquarium has a great resource called the Seafood Watch and it's actually you can download it as an app on your phone so you can check whether your the seafood on the menu is something sustainable and that you should be spending your dollars on. Tell me just really quickly what is sustainable seafood? What does that mean? So it means that it's both caught in a sustainable way So it's not using destructive fishing methods such as trawling which is when they basically drag a net along the bottom of the ocean and destroy that habitat to catch the fish. So avoiding methods uh, like that. And then also it's the from a population that is doing well enough and uh, replacing itself at a rate that's that in which the population is hopefully growing. And this is these numbers are still hard to really be accurate about, but I think they do a pretty good job of assessing which kinds of fish are are doing well and are in the green, and which ones are ones that you should just totally avoid. Okay, great. Thank you for that resource. I'm sure that there are more resources all over the internet. You know, we're not the only ones interested in the oceans and interested in protecting them. So if you're at all, if you're at all interested in this sort of thing, please look online and check out some of these resources in San Francisco Aquarium, Monterey Aquarium, and, you know, get involved as the public. But also we want to get students involved. So what, what can undergraduates, what can high school students do if they're interested now, after hearing all the cool stuff that you do, uh, both above the ocean and below the ocean, what can students do to sort of follow this trajectory? So students can get involved in all of the organizations I mentioned previously as volunteers, but also there's a lot of great sustainability resources here on campus. So through the ASUC or there's different sustainable sustainability groups like TGIF, that's the Green Initiative Fund. So as, as far as these are general sort of green groups on campus, but also as far as getting 
interested in research. There's lots of graduate students like me that would love help in the lab and from volunteers and can get involved that way. Or there's the the URAP program that will help set you up with labs on campus. So can students email graduate students that are interested in the same thing? I mean, if they're interested in what a graduate student's doing, is that is there somewhere on like the internet where you can find information about students and what they're doing and maybe even a way to contact them? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it varies depending on the graduate students, but a lot of us have information on our lab websites or museum websites if we're affiliated with a museum. And you can find our emails and, and email us. I've been emailed a few times by students, and I'm always incredibly flattered that they're even interested in my research and are have the enthusiasm to want to come, come figure, just find out more about what it's about and if they want to get involved. Because I know that some students feel like maybe, you know, they're an undergraduate, they don't have any experience, so they're just, they don't have anything to offer to graduate students. Is that the way they should feel or... No, not at all. Like, there's always something that a student can do, and all it takes is interest and enthusiasm, and also reliability is important, too. But, like, you know, if you can show up and learn learn your job, what I have my students doing is really pretty simple. It's sorting animals under their microscope, and the more they learn, the more they get interested in it, and the more skills that they're learning, too, and can help develop what they want to go on and do in their own careers. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. Thank you so much, Jenna. And thank you again for joining us here on The Graduates. I really appreciate it. Any last words to the audience? Go to the beach. Go to the beach. Hey, we're in California. You should definitely go to the beach. Again, I've been joined by Jenna Judge. She is a graduate student in the Department of Integrative Biology in the Lindbergh Lab. And uh, she's been telling us about her work in deep marine environments deep sea creatures, and all of those fantastic things. Again, you're listening to KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this has been another episode of The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work. And don't forget to tune in two weeks from today for another episode of The Graduates. We'll be back at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, May 6th, and joined by herpetologist Philip Skipwith. Until then, my name is Tesla Munson, and you've been listening to The Graduates here on KALX